Let me just pray for Andy now before he comes to speak to us from the passage we heard read earlier. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear uh, your word um, preached to us. Uh, we pray that what you want to say to us as a, as, a, as a church family, what you want to say to us as individuals listening in our own context, um, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, softening them to receive from you um, and in our minds to be just discerning what it is you have to say. Be with Andy as he speaks. Uh, Lord, I pray you would just take what he has prepared and his, his meditations on this and that you would now just give him the, the right words um, uh, just to speak uh, your message for us this evening. We're excited to hear what you want to say. We are grateful to you that your word is living and active. That story of those people, so much like us from thousands of years ago, um, is still relevant to us this evening as we listen to it in this context. So we thank you for that. And we are expecting to hear from you now. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, it is a joy to be with you again. Um, one of the things I love about Oikos is your love for God's word and your commitment to read God's word aloud, to allow God's word to really guide you and to shape you. I do wonder, though, our title today, The Wilderness University. And for some of us, we might hear that word university and think, Typical Christian, middle-class, academic, elitist analogy. This one doesn't apply to me. I'm not smart enough for university. I could never afford to go to university. People like me do not go to university. Well, I've got some good news. This is a university that you are all invited to. You have met the entry requirements. God is paying your tuition fees you are most most welcome but you might also say well university lasts for three years or so and as andy vaughan was reading that even that reading alone felt about 40 years long and actually i've got a little bit of knowledge about that story and that story lasts for 40 years and you would be right but i want to ask you to work with me on this metaphor so i went to university and in fact, um, this is what brought me to Birmingham. And I remember back in 2001, as a 19 year old, I packed my stuff into the back of my parents' car and we drove up to Birmingham. And now I went to Birmingham University, but before they made it all shiny. Um, so I lived in a grungy hall of residence um, where damp was an architectural feature of the building. Um, I shared a bathroom with 20 lads. Um, and then us 20 lads, we shared a tiny kitchen with another 20 girls on the adjoining corridor. Um, half of my meals were in the dining room downstairs, and I think it's probably fair to say that the culinary standards were more determined by quantity than quality. Um, I do remember having, I think, fruit crumble, and it said, this may contain nuts, and it felt as though it would be more appropriate if it said, this may possibly perhaps contain fruit. But anyway, very grateful for those formative years of my life. So I don't know if you know many students, but here's a really interesting question to ask them. Where's your home? Where is home? And I suspect that few first year university students would describe their halls of residence as home. And actually from my experience, probably most second or third year students living in shared student homes, they probably would still refer to their hometown, their family home as home. But eventually this changes. And so if, like me, a student stays in the city they go to university in, 
they will begin spending more and more of their time there, not going back for holidays, but remaining in that place. Their relationships and their recreation and actually probably even their sense of purpose will likely become more and more centered on that space. And as they do so, they begin acquiring and perfecting the skills needed to thrive in their new home, not taking laundry home, learning that actually you can do nice things with food and that go beyond stirring in a jar of pesto. Well, this story that we look at today is about a transition between homes. Imagine it as the student who leaves their home to forge a new home. And that can take anything from a moment to months to years. And as we see in this story, it takes a long time. It's home amidst the Egyptians to home amidst the promise. It's home in Egypt to home in the promised land. It's from the place of lack to the place of abundance. It's from the place of persecution to the place of peace. But the story focuses on the land between lands and we call that the wilderness. So we're going to dig into the scripture this evening and we're going to find out what God teaches his people in the wilderness university. So lesson number one in the wilderness, God heals in the wilderness. God heals. As we join the story, the Israelites, they're thirsty. Now, let's think about the context here as we kind of skip through pages in scripture. It's easy to lose track of time. But we see that this is three days since the parting of the Red Sea. So God parts the waters and he rejoins them just in time to complete the Israelites miraculous escape from Egypt, from Pharaoh. It's an incredible demonstration of God's power, isn't it? And you would think that they would have a sufficiently high view of God at this point to trust him to provide them with water. You'd think that wrong. But hang on a second. It is so easy to read scripture with what I call an idiot reflex. What's an idiot reflex? Well, Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. Idiots. I would never do that. The Pharisees cannot see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that they have longed for. Idiots. I would never do that. The people of God are miraculously rescued and three days later struggle to believe that he will provide water for them. Idiots. I would never do that. Wouldn't I? This is a really short sighted and friends, dare I say, an arrogant way to approach the Bible. So here's a little learning lens for us. It's far more constructive to ask, why are they behaving like this? Are there any ways that I behave like this? How can I live differently? So why are the Israelites behaving like this? Well, we've got to understand their historic context. They've endured generation after generation of unreliable, inconsistent, ungodly leadership. Think of the plagues that afflicted Egypt. Pharaoh, the great ruler, would relent and say, yeah, you can go, and then immediately change his mind. And he ultimately released them from that bond of slavery. But then straight afterwards, he chased after them in chariots just to get them back. That's their story of leadership. And now they have a new leader who has led them out. But what do they know about God at this point? So they are thirsty. They're desperate for water. And though technically free, their perspective is more dominated by the rule of Pharaoh 
than by the rule of God. They're in survival mode. They're vulnerable. They're fragile. And then one of them stumbles across a water source. They're gasping. They're thirsty. And they discover that it is completely undrinkable. They're devastated. And they begin to grumble. Now, grumbling is defined as a low-grade murmur of negativity. Does that sound familiar to you? I'm certainly guilty at times of grumbling. Um, it would feel wrong not to mention the football at this stage. I was quite tempted to kind of ham-fistedly do a kind of it's coming home thing for home to the promised land, but I, I would have lost you. But think about if you are into the football at all, the reaction to every single one of Gareth Southgate's England selections over the last couple of weeks. People have complained. People have said, Jack Grealish should be playing. People have said, mm, drop Harry Kane. People have said this. People have said, why are you playing that formation? And yet actually, as a footballing nation, we probably have greater confidence in our footballing leader right now than I can remember of any other footballing leader. But that's what we do. It's the low-grade murmur of negativity. It's cynicism. It's a lack of trust. And so against this backdrop of a lack of trust, what does God do? He responds. He doesn't respond as egotistical Pharaoh, but actually he responds by meeting their need. He responds by listening to their complaint and addressing it. And so he instructs Moses to throw a log into the water and the water immediately turns from bitter to sweet. And as he does so, God speaks into the broken belief system of his people. If you've got a Bible, maybe just look at verse 26 in chapter 15. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This is huge. God has yet again demonstrated his power, but also his kindness. And then he teaches them about his character and teaches them about his character in such a way that they could be compelled to change. And this is big because it's the first time in scripture we see a theme that goes throughout scripture. Actually, in Jesus's ministry, we see time and again that Jesus is healer. But this is the first time that we hear, I am the God who heals God, not just as rescuer and deliverer, not even just as provider, but God as healer. And we notice the setting. It doesn't happen in the abundance of the city. It doesn't even happen in the promised land. It happens in the wilderness. And so this evening, I want to say to you that God's intention for the wilderness is to heal you. It's to heal you. And it might be that there's physical ailment that you're carrying right now. But actually, it might be in the same way as with the Israelites. It's to rewire your brain. It's to change the way that you see things and think. To go back to my learning lens, are there any ways that I behave like this? I could regale you with loads of incredible stories of answers to prayer, of extraordinary last minute financial provision, of physical healing, both for myself, for other people, of amazing softening of hearts that you could never imagine, of deathbed encounters with Jesus, of the people that you would think would be least likely to ever receive God. And yet when things get tough, what do I do? I act out the Egyptian part of the story. I do my own thing. I try and fix it. I struggle to trust in God. And for a moment, why don't you just take a moment to reflect on your own story? 
How do you respond in those moments? And then the challenge is how can we live differently? So in the wilderness, everything is stripped back. It's like a survival course. The things we depend on, what do we depend on? Our resources, our relationships, our strengths, our age, perhaps, our competence, our confidence. God meets us as everything else is stripped back. And we realize that God is all we needed all along. And so for the Israelites, he shows that he's not like Pharaoh. He's not like the gods of Egypt, but he's healing Israel of their wrong view of God. And so we invite God to heal us of our wrong view of him. Let's go to lesson number two. In the wilderness, God feeds. So this journey of transformation, it involves us. And we see this in the way that God feeds his people. He doesn't just put food in their bellies, but he invites them to go and gather it. So chapter 16, we are now two months into our journey, roughly. And surprise, surprise, low grade negativity. They begin to grumble again. And honestly, when you think about the broader story, chapter 16, verse three, what an absurd verse. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat. We ate all the food we wanted but you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So let's stop there for a second. Let's do a little fast check. We like that these days. Let's remember the Israelites' status in Egypt. They were slaves. How do they get fed? Well, they worked like crazy to meet unrealistic quotas in order to receive their meager portion. But how do these Israelites two months in suddenly recollect this? We sat around a campfire every night, dipping our fork into the pot and having our fill of prime cuts of beef. No, God has rescued them from Egypt. And actually, he did it really suddenly. He did it really dramatically. But they are still hardwired to the ways of the Egyptians. How does this relate to us? I don't know some of you. I don't know your stories. I don't know whether you've been walking with Jesus for years. I don't know whether actually all of this is completely new to you. I don't know whether actually this evening is this evening where you'll say, do you know what? I want to know Jesus. I want to receive salvation. And we can receive that salvation in a moment. The Bible tells us that he can set us free instantly. But the journey of following him is just that it's a journey. In Romans 7, Paul says, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. Paul, this man who will later on see he follows Jesus passionately, zealously, and he sets a standard of what it is to follow Jesus. He struggles with this. We're in good company. I struggle with this, too. And so we need to invite Jesus to rewire us away from Egypt to the ways of his kingdom. But again, let's look at God's incredibly gracious response to this grumbling. Exodus 16, verse 12. I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. So tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Incredible, isn't it? So just like with the provision of water, God's first response is I will provide for you. I think if it was me, I'd probably be, come on, I'd get angry, I'd get frustrated, I'd want to call them out. But he says, no, I'll provide for you. But what do we see then? We see that some of his people do not trust him. 
And so he gives them really clear instructions. He says, take just as much as you need. But then some of them take enough for tomorrow, too. They don't trust God to keep to his word. And so they live out the Egyptian story. What was their task in Egypt? What were they doing? Let's look back to Exodus 1. Their task was to build storehouses. They were slaves and they were forced to build storehouses. So the Egyptian way is to store up food. But this is the wilderness university. And so God is teaching me saying, no, it doesn't work like that. So what happens? These um, Israelites wake up and they see the manna that they collected and it's full of mold and maggots and it's not fit to eat. And it's God saying to them, you are not in Egypt anymore. Here with me, I feed you differently. And so that moves us on to our third lesson. And it's something that's extraordinarily different from the ways of Egypt. And that's that in the wilderness, God gives us rest. And it's fascinating, isn't it, that actually this whole portion of scripture attends to some of the most basic of human needs. Water, twice, we're not going to get time to dig into um, chapter 17, where actually they grumble again about thirst and God gives another incredible way for um, water to be provided for them. But water, food and rest. And what we see each time is that each will be provided, but each will be provided on God's terms, not their terms, not an old system like in Egypt, but on God's terms. Exodus 16, verse 23. This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And so they've got their food instructions, but there is one exception and one exception only. For one day of the week only, they were to collect a double portion so that on the Sabbath they could rest. And actually, that's really significant because in Egypt, they'd been slaves. They had just worked and worked and worked and industry had been their consistent norm. And it was through their industry that they were acceptable to their rulers. And yet God says, I want you to rest. I want you to stop. I want you to pause. I want you to enjoy my presence. But what do we see again? We see from verse 27 that some of the people didn't follow the instructions. So those that had woke up to a portion that they'd collected the day before, they were good. They had found that actually, unlike the other days, it wasn't mouldy. It wasn't infested with maggots. But there were some that woke up on the Sabbath to gather manna, and they found that there was none. So we had some who had acted out of a fear of too little, and then others who had not yet learned to obey. You see, manna is a test. It's, it's not a test of cruelty. It's not God as some horrendous taskmaster like the slave driver in Egypt. But it's a test to try and establish a right way of thinking, a right way of living. Collect too much and you'll wake up to maggots. Ignore the Sabbath and you will wake up to nothing. And so God says, are you ready to receive my bread? Are you ready to receive my life? Then trust me. The way to receive in Egypt was, was through anxiety. It was through hoarding. It was through competition. Think about that. They had quotas. Actually, they were being set against each other. They were being taught to compete because actually, if you did not do your job, then you would not eat. And so the person next to you was a competitor. You wanted to be better than them. 
the way of Egypt, anxiety, hoarding and competition. What does God say that receiving is like in his kingdom? He says it's about trust. He says it's about sharing and he says it's about community. But as we looked at briefly before, God's initiative, it always invites our participation. So whether it is just that crazy story of Moses throwing a log into the water, whether it's the people collecting food from the ground or it's obeying the call to rest, we're involved in this process. Just like if you go to university, it's not just about lectures, but it's then about tutorials, it's about seminar groups, it's about writing papers, it's about processing a response. And so what's our part to play? It's a quote from an American pastor called Barbara Taylor. And she says this, she says, most of us prefer remorse to repentance. We would rather say, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I feel really, really awful about what I've done. Than actually start doing things differently. Chronic guilt, she says, is the price we are willing to pay in order to avoid change. I think that's a really powerful statement. It's a statement that bears itself out when you look at the story of the Israelites. Again, right at the beginning of chapter 17, we see another water story. If you travel on to numbers, you see more grumbling at the lack of food that they're receiving. They're going through this cycle. And actually, each time when God receives, I'm sure their response is, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I feel rubbish about my response right there. But rather than actually doing things differently, they live in that moment. And I wonder whether we also live in that moment where maybe God puts his finger on something, where maybe we recognize, you know, oh man, I messed up again there. What's our response? Is it just to say sorry? Or is it to commit to that sense of change? And I think that, that Barbara Taylor puts it right that actually the cost of not changing is that we live in this awkward space where we feel this chronic guilt rather than living in the freedom that Jesus has won for us. Actually, God calls us to change. And so that comes to our critical question. Do we truly believe that the Lord is among us? That's almost if we're returning to our university metaphor. It's the, the key question for our notional finals do we believe that God is with us? When push comes to shove, when ease turns to struggle, when comfort shifts to pain. Because the reality is that we will go through hard times. It's pretty much promised in the Bible that we will go through hard times. God doesn't promise us an easy time, but he promises that he will be with us. Do we truly believe that? Do we truly believe that God is with us? Are we still living in Egypt? Or are we ready for the promised land? Are we willing to go through the wilderness? See, the, the wilderness is a hard place, but it's a good place. And just like with the Israelites, the Lord's leading us there. Think about it. The, the Lord led them through the Red Sea. The Lord led them into the wilderness. And it doesn't mean that he's behind their pain. It doesn't mean he's at fault for perhaps our pain. But he is working in it. And so God says this. He says, I'm causing you to be thirsty and I'm providing you with water. I'm causing you to be hungry and I'm feeding you. It was never about the manna. It was never about a magic log. It's about trusting God. It's about entering his rest. And so the wilderness university is less about testing and it's more about teaching. He's teaching us trust. He's teaching us dependence. 
But are we willing to trust him? Are we willing to depend on him? Will we allow him to teach us how to be at home? See, the purpose of the wilderness for the Israelites wasn't just that they could survive in the desert. It was that they would be prepared to walk into the promised land. They would be ready to enter a new place of home. And they could only do that if Egypt was driven out of them. God drove them out of Egypt, but actually it was the wilderness that allowed God to work Egypt out of them. And here's what is beautiful and literally glorious. As we allow God to do this, the wilderness, the place that is theoretically the hardest place, becomes a place of worship. Let's skip back to chapter 16, verse 10. And so after God responds to the grumble for food, we read this. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert. And there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Glory of the Lord. These Israelites who had been in slavery, the glory of the Lord is there. It doesn't happen very often in scripture. And so as the Israelites allow God to rewire their thinking, to teach them, he shows them his glory. He says, come before me, gather and worship. And so when we turn away from Egypt, when we turn towards the desert, when we are willing to step into the wilderness, we see God's glory. We see it when we are struggling. We see it when we find things hard because God will work amidst the wilderness and he will teach us how to be at home in him. I have a um, really dear friend who um, several years ago, another dearly friend, dear friend, his wife had a brain aneurysm and her life was completely in the balance and she survived, but actually she survived with just a huge amount of scarring. She, her mobility is limited. She can barely communicate. She has three wonderful children and life's really hard. And my friend goes through struggle after struggle and his health has become severely affected. It's, it's just heartbreaking sometimes to see, but it's the closest thing actually to this. It's the closest thing to the life of Job that I see. And I see God working out his goodness constantly in his life. When he's struggling, there's anger, there's honest anger, and yet that consistent turning back to God. And in the midst of that, some of the most extraordinary wisdom that I ever come across. God is teaching him in the wilderness. I wonder what this evening God would like to teach you in the wilderness. I wonder how God would like to shape you. I wonder what God would like to put his finger on in you. Is it maybe a lack of trust? Maybe the lack of trust that God will provide. Or having seen that he has provided before, maybe just the trust that he'll do it again. Maybe actually for you, the power of God is not something you doubt. But maybe you doubt that she wants to show you that power. When I was um, 13 years old, I was really quite severely ill. I was in a wheelchair. I'd grown up um, in a Christian home, um, genuinely believed in God. But I didn't have much experience of the God who heals. And I remember people asking me, Andy, can we pray for you? And I said, no, I don't want you to pray for me. I was angry and I had to work out that anger in a wilderness space. And here's what I eventually realized. I eventually realized that I never doubted God's power. Actually never doubted God's love. 
and I never doubted God's goodness, but I doubted that he wanted to show me those things. And in a moment of humility, um, I couldn't walk. I was in a complete mess. I remember giving those things back to God and effectively saying, God, if you're real, I just have to choose to trust you with those things. And it was from that point that then I allowed people to pray for me that I began to get better. And it was a journey. It wasn't an overnight healing moment, but it was from that point very, very clearly that I began to get better. Wonder whether actually for you, the Wilderness University is not about the truth of God's character, but actually is, does he want to show you those things? So let me pray for a moment just before I hand back to Andy. Lord, this evening we invite you to quench our thirst. Lord, we invite you to feed us. We invite you to give us rest. We ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would help us to trust you. And Lord, we pray that we would find our home in you. God, maybe some of us right now feel like we are in the wilderness. We're in that land between lands. We're in that space where there are more questions than answers, where perhaps we're wondering how we're going to pay the bills this month. Whether maybe we're questioning the, the pathway in life we're on, whether the job we're in is the right job for us. Maybe whether the relationships around us are healthy relationships for us. God, in that place of wilderness, I thank you that you are there. And so just like those Israelites, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't look back to Egypt. We wouldn't look back to a place of supposed comfort. But God, we would look you right in the eye. We would look into that wilderness and we'd see your glory. So come and teach us, come and strengthen us, come and refine us this evening. We thank you that just as we sung earlier, that you are faithful. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. Your love is unchanging. Your mercies, just like the manna, they're new every morning. In your precious and powerful name, Jesus. Amen.